HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin wins more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. Hey, thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. This is Katie, HRN Executive Director, and I'm so excited to share with you our coverage from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. We are here live today at Charleston Wine and Food. Join us as we talk all things food. Come to Charleston, eat some seafood. Eat all of the seafood. Chicken fried chicken with chorizo steak and salsa verde mashed potatoes. So quintessentially like Southern fare at its finest. And have important conversations. And we're also talking about professional women in restaurants and how underrepresented they are. People of color in restaurants and how they're not talked about. We get real with Food Network's Manit Chohan. Balance is BS. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was, yeah, I was told that uh, I wasn't going to be bleeped out. And find out about raising sugarcane with Chef Sean Brock. It's like being Indiana Jones or something. You never know what you're going to find. You'll come away inspired by the power of food and the food scene in Charleston. Here's Dr. Jessica B. Harris. Food is constantly in flux. Food is always moving. Food is the only real lingua franca that we have that allows us to connect with other folks. So tune in to Heritage Radio Network on tour at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You can't go wrong. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk to people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. Today's episode number 102 of Feast Your Ears, and I'm very uh, excited and, and honored to have John Jamison on the phone from Jamison Farm out in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. Uh, he and his wife, Suki, have been raising lamb out there on a little over 200 acres since 1976, and uh, really interested to talk about it as lamb is sort of, I think, on the tip of everyone's tongue this week as we head into Passover and Easter. Thanks, John, for joining me. Well, thank you very much. Yes, it's a Wednesday before um, uh, Easter, and Passover is Friday, right? It's yep. it's Friday. Yeah, yeah, absolutely exciting. <laughs> it is. So, uh, you know, for someone who who is in the uh, in the lamb in the lamb business, uh, you know, is this your busiest time of the year? Yes, it is. This is actually today is one of our busiest days, probably shipping ah. because we we ship FedEx ground. 
to a lot of places, and it's a two-day shipment. So, yeah, we're right. very busy today. Well, I, I appreciate the time uh, out of, oh, out of one of your all. busiest days. We were going to speak last week, but uh, we had a crazy snowstorm here in New York City late, late spring and couldn't get into the studio. So thank you so much. Right. Sure. Uh, so I wanted to, you know, I wanted to to talk a little bit today about uh, about you and about your story. Um, so, w- did you grow up on a farm? No, I didn't. I was. Um, uh, we were we were preppies and yuppies and English majors at college. All right. <laughs> so we were about we were about as far away from it as you could be. Um, <laughs> and and you and your wife are are were high school sweethearts. Is that am I correct about that? That's right. We well, we met the last year of high school, All right. and um, uh, yes, we got married rather young. So uh, I was twenty-one and she was twenty, which today is young, I guess. But then sure. was fairly normal. Sure. But anyway, so so tell me, how did you you know how did you go from uh, you know I guess musty old books to uh, to you know grass <laughs> and sheep? Well. Well, yeah, it's an interesting story, I think. I, uh, so we, I was working in business. Um, I was a salesman, and then I was in the coal business in western Pennsylvania. And uh, my wife and I, Suki and I, bought an old house in, um, near, near Latrobe, the other side of Latrobe. Um, and it was a stone house. It was built in 1798. It was beautiful, and we wanted to restore it. Um, but the guy would not sell the property unless, or not sell the house unless we bought the 65 acres and went with it. Uh-huh. So we kind of learned about sheep then, and, and Suki um, uh, started a 4-H project for our two kids at that time, and uh, that was sheep because they didn't break things down like cattle did. Right. And uh, that was really how everything started, basically. And then she had a catering business, and we did a gig, and uh, somebody wanted lamb, and we and we used one of our lambs, and they said it was the best lamb they ever had. So I thought, well, you know, this might be something. Got it. So that's how that started. But we got we I I got very interested. Well, we both did. She was interested in the in the kids and the catering and the food part, but I, I became very interested in, um, in grass production for lambs. So we were really for sheep and lambs, and so we started raising them on grass. We really had grass-fed lamb as early as 1978. Wow. So that was way, way before it became kind of a big deal. Sure. So at that time, your contemporaries were, I, I assume, mostly moving towards raising lamb in pens and feeding them grain? Exactly. And and the problem um, was at that time, and the, and, and the reason for doing it, there, there were a couple reasons for switching to grass. Number one, it was right after the Arab oil embargo. Right. And it was uh, during the time it was then between the Arab oil embargo and then going into the grain deals with Russia, uh, the price of grain went very, very high. And at the same time, uh, uh, fence technology was really being developed around here because U.S. Steel had the first high tensile fence, or excuse me, high tensile wire, which mm-hmm. worked with with um, uh, the new kind of smooth wire fencing that we were utilizing. 
And so it was kind of a lot of things going on at one time that worked. And the other thing is the area where we are on the western ridge of the Alleghenies has amazing grass production. Sure. So everything just kind of worked out, and I thought it was cool, and that's what we did. Oh, that's amazing. So so you started out with this piece of 65-acre of property. You've grown that since, obviously. Yes, we switched farms. We sold... We, we worked that uh, for 10 years, and, and most of that time was fun, uh, meaning, well, it's still fun, <laughs> but it was joy for fun, not profit. Sure. And then in, in 1985, we bought a bigger farm uh, on the other side of Latrobe, uh, uh, which was 110 acres, and then it, it grew over the years to, to 210. Got it. Um, you know, so you you've obviously been you know you've been doing this for for a long time. Do you see other farms uh, either you know it, gain, coming in to to the area there in the Western Alleghenies or or disappearing? I was looking at some national statistics on lamb production, and you know to look at those, I mean both consumption and number of farmers and number of head are quite reduced from the nineties. Yes, it is. I think that it's. It, it's very interesting with lamb is it really what what we've developed over the years um, at the risk of being immodest is really a niche market yeah and so the because I think the average consumption uh, was when we started or during during the days that I worried about it was I think a half a pound per person where uh, beef and chicken are thirty and forty pounds. Right. Um, so it's a, it's kind of a tight tight thing. On the having said that, I think with a lot of the interest in sustainable farming and grass farming, um, there there are young uh, younger families starting to do this. It's spotty, but yeah. it's there's interest, and I think with the farm markets. Um, it's it's changing. It's changing. Sure. There's a lot of interest that there wasn't, I think, five years ago. Sure, and I have to imagine that. I mean, even you know, the uh, you know things like having easy availability to FedEx today, and having you know, I mean, people can order lamb. You know, I I you know can order lamb on your website and have it two days later, and that's a you know a real technological advancement that I'm sure 25 years ago you weren't able to sell lamb direct to consumer in that way. Right. It was, well, what happened with us, it was interesting. When we started the business, we started the business really as a business in 85, and then in 88 we were discovered by Jean-Louis Paladin, the Mm. chef. And so then we started selling to restaurants. But we started it as a mail-order business, and one of the advantages we have here is that uh, New Stanton, Pennsylvania, is uh, is an area which is at the at the juncture of the Pennsylvania Turnpike and Route 70. So it's kind of a central uh, transit area. Yep. And they they had a big UPS station there, and then five or ten years later, FedEx put a big station in there. So it's made it, it's made it very easy for us to ship, and, and we just really exploited that in the proper sense, because at that time there was no interest in this area in lamb. We had to go outside to areas like D.C., as I said, that started with Jean-Louis, and then, of course, New York and Chicago and 
we ship everywhere now. Right. I mean, so, you know, it sounds to me like, you know, a, a big part of your story, and I, you know, I think this is true of a lot of the sort of, you know, a lot of the successful farmers that I know, you've been able to take advantage of things that have happened as they've come up. Uh, you mentioned the fencing at the sort of right place, right time. You mentioned yes. the opportunity to, to, you know, or being forced to buy 65 acres with this beautiful old house that you also right. wanted, uh, and then taking advantage of the shipping opportunity. So that's, you know, I think that's that's really, uh, I think, valuable um, from a from a business development standpoint as well, um, that people should be open to that if they're going to try to get into something like this. Well, thank you. And I, th- I think that's true. I think that's true with 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 the things that you've done, with any of these things in the food business, I think you have to kind of um, just try different things, uh, throw it on the wall, as they say, and see what sticks. Sure. And just jump at every opportunity you can. And most, uh, many of the ones that we did, and I'm right, I just finished a book about it. But anyway, many of the things that we did, we simply could not afford at the time that we did them. And I dodged uh, bankruptcy, I think, 12 times that I can remember. <laughs> sure. Anyway, you know, it's interesting, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, a, a, a more interesting life, right? And sort of leads yes. to that. Uh, do you raise any other animals or keep any other animals on the farm? We have, uh, we have a couple horses and we have dogs for, uh, for herding. We have border collies. Got it. How, ma- how many the- border collies do you use? We have three, but I use uh, I use one at a time. Sure. I have one that's good at gathering. I have one that's good at driving, and I have another one that's learning. Oh, interesting. When I was a, when I was a kid, we had a, a series of Aussie sheepdogs. Really? Uh, who were not? I mean, they weren't trained, but they would herd myself and my friends and my brother if we were like running on the lawn so they had this instinct and i remember actually one of them once bit a friend of mine in the ankle did he be- really because there was this herd of us and we were running around and the dog was trying to hurt us and i mean you know the dog had not been trained at all but <laughs> that's right it's it's natural what they do is they well when you train a border collie all that you really have to do is 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 figure out a way to get them on the other side of the sheep. Hmm. And if and if you're standing on one side of the sheep and he's on the other side of the sheep, he naturally brings them to you. Oh, interesting. So yeah, that's yeah, yes, you were definitely being herded. Yeah, oh, we were for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, what breeds do you work with? Well, we do what what I do with breeds here is is it's a it's a mix, but uh and 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 there's a lot of discussion about this, especially with heritage breeds that you obviously yep. are part of in a way. Is that um, we use we use breeds that work best with the grass here. I see. And and so they usually are some sort of cross of Dorsets, and I prefer old type Dorsets. And Suffolk or Hampshire. So mm-hmm. this would be the the famous classic um, uh, Dorset mixed with a famous classic British uh, blackface sheep. And when they're when they're crossed, the what's called the F1 cross, meaning the first the the result of the first breeding, those things do really really well on the grass in this area. 
And so they almost become indigenous to this area because you're, you, uh, you, you have access to sheep that do well in this area, and then the lambs also do well in the area, right. fat and well. Yeah. Um, how old are your animals usually at slaughter? It depends. Uh, they'll be anywhere from uh, three months to six or seven months, typically. Do you ever raise them longer than that for mutton? Do you have any call for that? No. We well, we we have people that that ask once or twice a year, but um, it's it's not well. I can do it, but if somebody wants it, then I sell the whole thing because right. I can't sell pieces because somebody will want a leg, and then I can't sell the rest of it. Sure. Sure. So, but but yes, it, I mean it's wonderful if it's done right, and if you if if the producer knows what he's doing, right? Um, and then you know just to, you know to to give the to give listeners kind of a sense of the of sort of the the cycle of the of the farming. So when are the I mean the lambs are are being born now? Is that well? Here's here's what we do here at the farm. The way we work is this: we. We've done it all different ways sure. over the years. And so uh, we lamb in May, uh, and we lamb in May because the grass here is, in my opinion, at its peak. Ah, I see. And so the mothers, their udders are so full that the lambs do very, very well on the grass and the milk. They're they're starting on the milk of the mother, and then... Uh, and then when they switch off and they kind of self-wean in about 45 to 60 days off of the mother, and then by that time they're, they're uh, used to the grass, and so it's, it's June, July, and we have enough rain still at that time that, that it, the grass is in pretty good shape, so they're growing well. Now, at the same time, what we do is we buy local lambs here as soon as we can after weaning and then we finish them on our grass because the grass is really better than the ewes need the ewes the mothers yep. um and so the ewes are the mothers and the rams are the fathers and so as we always say the way you know is did you hear about the ram that fell off a cliff trying to make a u-turn <laughs> little humor there for you. uh anyway Anyway, so uh, what happens is the ewes only really need the better grass at, at when when they're lactating with the lambs. Got it. And so it's better to use, as far as a business goes, it's right. better to use the grass that we have to really fatten as many lambs as we can, and that's what we do. Sure. So you're you're as much a grass farmer as anything else. Probably a grass farmer first. Yeah. And and really, that's interesting that you ask that because when when people ask me what we do, I say we grow grass, and then the lambs the lambs eat it. Right, right. And then you're you're taking, you know, taking part in the raising of the lambs, but without the grass, the whole thing falls apart. Exactly. And the grass, I mean, the grass here is amazing. And we just actually, I just started something that I hadn't done before. Well, I actually had done it maybe about twenty years ago. But we did something last week, which is called frost seeding. And what we do is we we spread clover, which is a a a, a uh, legume, mm-hmm. with uh, timoth- 
timothy, excuse me, which is a grass, and we we spread it. Uh, it was about six or seven o'clock in the morning when the gra- when the uh, ground was frozen, and then after you spread it, um, I come in and the sun comes out and the the uh, soil gets warm, and it. It, it pulls the seed down into the soil. You, you aren't you aren't breaking any of the soil. Huh. It's fascinating. It works. You got to put a lot on, and you right. got to kind of do a rain dance to be sure yeah. it works. <laughs> right. But, um, it's it's a way to seed without breaking the the sod. Huh. Very interesting. We're going to take a short break and hear from one of our sponsors. Uh, and when we come back, uh, I want to talk a little bit about. Uh, Easter traditions, if you have any to Great. share. All righty. Today's program was brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. What do you think of when you hear Wisconsin Cheese? For me, I think cheese curds. Delicious, fresh and squeaky cheese curds. Or deep fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally any way, any time, any place. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese, the farmstead cheese company behind Pleasant Ridge Reserve. I think of delicious, stinky Limburger and its long storied history. I think of Dunbarton Blue, made by master cheesemaker Chris Raleigh. I think of Ross Grand Cru Sirchois, which was named 2016's World Championship Cheese, and Satori's Black Pepper Bella Vitano, the 2017 U.S. Championship Cheese. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese, with lush grasslands and a glacial water supply that produce the very best milk. Fourth-generation cheesemakers combine old-world tradition with new ideas and the highest standards to make innovative cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and if you're just joining us today on the phone, I have John Jamison from Jamison Farm out in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. And before the break, we were talking about uh, how John is really a grass farmer, not a uh, not not a sheep farmer or a grass farmer right. first, I guess. Um, yes. So, w- with it being the week of, of Passover and Easter, uh, you know, you said it's one of your one of your busiest weeks. Well, won't take too much of more of your time here for the interview because I'm sure you have to get back to back to shipping. But I was curious to know, uh, you know, if you have any Easter recipes or traditions surrounding lamb in your family. Well, yeah, we do. Um, one of the uh, probably the biggest thing that we do normally, Easter is very early this year. It is, yeah. Yeah, and so normally what we do is, or hopefully I should say rather than normally, yeah. is, is uh, we use a lot of asparagus uh, because our asparagus is up, but it's not going to be up this early. Sure. So we, so our typical spring uh, dinner is, Easter dinner, is, uh, is, is uh, leg of lamb, 
and and uh, asparagus with hollandaise and new potatoes, and it's great, and red wine, and oh boy, <laughs> it's it's a wonderful thing. But what we do is we we prefer to use what we call a semi-boneless leg of lamb, which is a, about a four to five pound leg of lamb with the H bone or pelvic bone off and also the shank off normally. That's how we do it. Mm. And then we, uh, we use a recipe which was from Julia Child's Way to Cook, which she kind of gave us permission to call uh, Eliza's mustard glaze and Eliza's my daughter. Oh, I've actually I've made that recipe. I love it. Isn't it great? It's amazing. Yeah, it is. And and so when we use it, um, it actually in the in the old days, what we used to do is we would send her a leg of lamb every spring, and I would call her up and I would say, "Am I sending it to Cambridge or is it going to Santa Barbara?" Mm-hmm. She would say, well, dear, this is where it's going. <laughs> and then I would send it, and uh, and one year she wanted a huge leg of lamb. Because she, was a, she was a huge person in mm-hmm. every way yeah. one could imagine. And, and, and so we sent it to her, and she wrote me a very nice note because I think she fed 12 people. It was the biggest darn thing we had. <laughs> And uh, she, but but I hanged it for an extra long period of time to be sure everything was perfect. Sure. And I sent it to her, and she used she wrote the thank you note back, uh, also with a new cookbook signed, which is what she always did, which is great. Uh, so nice. And um, she she had used the mustard glaze and and said how how wonderful it was. But but I think she she said something about the fact that I use the mustard glaze as I always do. I think she used it on almost everything. I think she used it on racks too. Yeah, sure. But uh, what what I do when when we use it is is we we uh, roast it to an internal temperature. Well, it's it's a it's a three twenty five to three fifty. Typically, that's how we're cooking. At the internal temperature, is about um, I think we pull it out at 120 to 130 and let it rest. And what I do with since I put the mustard glaze on it, um, then what I do is I take the drippings from the pan and I deglaze it with red wine, and which I'm drinking, and yeah, then I put. And then I put more of the mustard glaze back in there and mix it together, and that goes on the the leg when we slice it. Oh wow! It sounds it sounds delicious. I was just trying to figure out. I'm I'm making the lamb, I think, uh, for Easter dinner uh, with my in laws. Who my right. mother my mother in law will be making ham because my brother in law doesn't like lamb. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I've been hell bent ever since he married into the family to try and figure out how to convince him otherwise so perhaps right. this perhaps this year i will do the the mustard glaze eliza's gl- mustard glaze on the on the lamb and see if that can turn him it's great it turns a lot of people yeah it does and and also to be excuse me immodest well <laughs> maybe not immodest yes immodest is that if if it's our lamb it's different sure and and that that does make a difference with a lot of people yeah absolutely so to, to get back to the, the sheep themselves, um, 
you know, I sheep also are not just raised for their meat, but are raised for their wool. So are your sheep shorn, and then does the wool go somewhere? Yes, we shear the sheep every year before um, we lamb, so that so that they're clean for the for the lambs, and um, that wool is is just sold to um, to what we call here a wool pool, hmm. um, which is uh, run by various counties, and they they buy all the wool and then they sell it to a central buyer. Got it. But we don't really do anything. We don't. Uh, knit anything, or uh, it, in the old days, Suki fooled around with that. Sure. But with our business now, it doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make any sense. Got it. Um, and so to 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 jump back to Julia Child. So aside, I mean, you you had a relationship with her, obviously selling her lamb, but you also met her and spent some time with her in Cambridge, correct? Yes, we did. So the way. Yes, the way it, the the relationship started is that Suki's mother had gone to her cooking school in France that she did with with uh, Sim Quebec um, and uh, what's her name Berthold. Yep. Ms. Um, and and uh, it, it, w- it was a cooking school there, which was called Les Trois Gourmands, mm-hmm. and. So anyway, she knew Julian. So when we started the business, she wrote Julian and said, "Well, my my daughter and her son-in-law are starting this business, and it's going to be the best lamb in the world." And Julia, <laughs> being Julia, wrote wrote her back a very nice letter saying, "I don't endorse anything, but isn't that cute?" Yeah. <laughs> so so that was that. But we we met her in an event in uh, with the IACP. Um, which, who I think you interviewed them a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago, if I'm not, but anyway, if I'm not mistaken, but we we uh, went to an IACP event in 1992 in Miami, and uh, she asked me to. It's a long story, and it's in the book, by the way. Okay. But anyway, it's um, she asked me to show uh, some people where the rack was on her. So I showed her the rack on the back, and then I showed her where the saddle was with my two hands, uh, putting them between the fifth rib and the third rib. Is that right? Yeah, something like Suki's right here. <laughs> I want to be sure I Suki's the cutter, so <laughs> I have to I have to be sure I did it right. But anyway, it was it was a lot of fun, and and uh, people were drinking gin and having a great time, and therefore we became very good friends. And then she followed us all the way through. And when I was making a product, we, we make uh, soups and stews and sausages. And when I would make a new product, I would send it to her for her opinion. And, and we, just, we just got to be friends. And then she kind of used us when she had butcher questions. And that was really neat because I sent her a leg of lamb one spring, and she thought it was tough. Hmm. So I had to figure out how to fix it, and she was fascinated with what we did. And so the, I think that did more than anything else to kind of make us friends. Sure. No, that's that's amazing. So tell me about your book. You said you just finished it. When does it come out? Well, it it should be. We're we're shooting for the fall. Um, uh, fall. Well, before Christmas, we hope. But uh, it's a, so the name of the book is Coyotes in the Pasture, Wolves at the Door. 
<laughs> which I thought was pretty much says what we've been through for yeah. 30 years. Wow. And uh, it's a story. It's a it's a story of the farm, but also dealing with a lot of the chefs that um, helped us, like Julie and Jean Louis and Danielle Balloon and various people, because we were all starting. This was when we started. It was it was in the late '80s with the chefs. It was in the late '80s, early '90s, and so. You know, there was just John Louis doing what he was doing. Alice Waters was mm-hmm. doing what she was doing at Chez Panisse on the West Coast. And then people like Norman Van Aken in Florida. And we're, we're all about the same age, and all this stuff was going on at the, at the same time. And there were only certain chefs that were doing this stuff, and there, and there were only certain purveyors that could do it. Yep. And so it, it was a timing thing, like you mentioned at the start of the of the interview. It, w- it was just one of those things that was just lucky and worked out. It was fun. Amazing. Was fun. So, are your children following in your footsteps? Uh, my uh, n- n- <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> my my son uh, is a dot com person in Boston, and my next daughter is a teacher in Boston. And my youngest, if any, followed. She's a chef in Pittsburgh. Got it. And she went to the CIA, and and uh, she she worked actually at La Bernadette uh, for a year or two when she was first out. Oh, very nice. Yeah. Excellent. Well, we're we're just about uh, just about out of time here, and I know you've got a lot of shipping to to get back to, but I want to make sure people know where they can where they can eat your lamb and how they can buy it. Um, so. You know, Great. I would encourage people to go to your website, uh, which is jamisonfarm.com, right? Yep. They can order it right there, ship direct to their door. And where else can where else can they find it? Uh, well, let me also mention, if I may, so it, it's, it, as you said, www.jamisonfarm.com, and we also have uh, an 800 number, 800-237-TACKY, but it works LAMB. So it's eight hundred eight hundred two three seven five two six two. Nice. We we don't sell to any stores in New York. Um, in New York, we're selling to uh, let's see, Glassery. Yep, up here in Greenpoint in Brooklyn. Yeah, uh, La Bernadette, Lupa, uh, Mario's Restaurant. Yep. Anybody? I'm asking my wife. Yeah. We can't. We never think of them when people put us on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that, but no, we no, aren't selling okay. any stores there. But yeah. it's probably as well just just to buy directly from us, and we ship it, and it gets there in two days. Sure. Um, excellent. And uh, so people should go to the go to the website and check it out. And right. uh, you know, next time I'm driving through. Uh, through that part of Pennsylvania. I mean, it's a beautiful area. I mean, I, my aunt and uncle live in Pittsburgh, so I make the drive from New York to Pittsburgh once or twice a year. Um, and obviously in the, in the, you know, early part of the summer and the, you know, in the, in the early fall driving through that part of Pennsylvania as the leaves are starting to turn, it's really beautiful. So you have, it a, is beautiful. I'm sure you have a wonderful, wonderful spot there. Well, thank you very much. And we are right off the, if you're coming from New York going to Pittsburgh, you would, drive almost right past the farm. Um, and I see that you actually have hours on, on Fridays and Saturdays at the farm where people can stop by and, and buy stuff retail? 
That's right. This week we're doing, uh, because it's Easter week, we do Thursday and Friday, 12 to 5, and then Saturday, 9 to 2, and we bring everything. We The one thing I didn't talk about is we we have our own processing, our own USDA processing plant, and we bring everything from there, which is five miles away, back over to the farm and refrigerated truck, and then we have it all here. Ah, and that actually, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up. I'll, I'll turn back to that for one second before we fully wrap up, because I, I actually did want to touch on processing. I know one of the major barriers to a lot of uh, a lot of small farmers is the processing and is, you know, whether or not there are kill slots available at a slaughterhouse or even if there's a slaughterhouse nearby at all. Right. So, so you have your own facility? Yes. What we did was, in, uh, and this goes into one of the things that almost bankrupted us, is we couldn't afford it, but um, we, we bought a USDA plant in a uh, slaughterhouse processing plant in October of 1994. So we've been, we've been doing this ourselves for 24 years. And when we w- were growing the business, after starting to sell to some of the chefs in the late 80s, early 90s, they were, as I mentioned the names of them, they're very demanding mm-hmm. and uh, had schedules. And the only way that we could really control the quality was to have our own plan. It took us a couple years to figure out how to do it. And we have a proprietary system of taking care of, of uh, grass-fed animals in the slaughter and processing um, system. And so uh, it's, it's, it's been a godsend for us as far as growing the business. Well, and, and it, I mean, it's amazing that you're able to vertically integrate it and in, in a really um, sort of smart way because then you do have control of it, right? I mean, I imagine yes. one of the hardest things for a small farmer, especially someone who's, you know, who's doing something that requires so much energy and dollar input on the front end like raising livestock and then if that animal is not well slaughtered and not taken care of in the processing you know all that earlier hard work is can be destroyed well you're exactly right and you can as i always tell people i said you can raise them beautifully for with lamb for six or eight months and you can if you have somebody that doesn't know what what he's doing you can mess it up you can just ruin it in 30 seconds yep absolutely well Thank you so much, John. I really appreciate well, your time you. uh, on the radio today, and, and happy Easter and Passover to you and your family. Great. Thanks, thank so- you very much, and, and same to you, and thank you so much for calling. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Feast Your Ears today. Big thank you to David Tatashore for engineering this show every week. You can find Feast Your Ears, as well as lots of other great shows, at heritageradionetwork.org, on Stitcher, on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. Please take a moment to like this show. If you do, in fact, like it, you can reach out to me with questions, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com. And you can follow me on social media at The Foodballer. Have a great Easter and Passover, everybody, and I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thank you.